Tonight I'm going to give you a thoroughly confusing and irresponsible and I hope slightly alarming account of the cosmic forces and what they are doing to us. And this has nothing to do with poltergeist. This is me talking about recorded facts, mostly out of length articles from such journals as the Southern Ukrainian Academy of Sciences by Monkey's Vietnik, which may not come your way very often, or the Estonian Journal of Drains and that sort of thing. We have waded through a colossal amount of extremely odd material and flung it all together and we sort of stood back and saw what emerged and what did emerge was the idea that in fact really trying to take a very new look and a new approach to practically everything. Well, I'll go back somewhat and try and start again in a rather more simple manner. Having warned you that we're dealing with a highly complicated subject, and as somebody once said, I have a great ability to make complicated subjects even more complicated. So here we go. You may remember a short story by one of my favorite writers, Stephen Leacock, in which somebody jumps on a horse and rides off in all directions. And that really is a very good image to bear in mind when we think of our solar system, which is something I would like to think about, something we all take for granted. We're down here and the sun is up there and the moon somewhere around and the planets we can't see anyway, and they don't have any effect on us anyway, so we forget them. But we don't really think about our solar system. I don't think as much as we should, and what it means, what it implies. First of all, uh, although we're all very nice and quiet in this delightful, quiet town, we may not realize that we're, we are rushing around in all directions, we're rotating, 1,080 miles an hour. We're orbiting the sun at 66,000 miles an hour. The entire solar system is moving in the direction of Sagittarius at about 40-something thousand miles an hour. So we're going like this and like that and like that. And yet we don't feel it. The extraordinary thing is not that we survive in spite of all this furious motion but that we could not survive without it. We have become adapted to an extremely violent background, which is far from peaceful. We, we think of the moon, the night, as something romantic and charming. Well, I'm sorry to have to tell you that it isn't even moonlight, of course, it's sunlight, reflected off the moon, so there goes that dream. Also, it does have some rather alarming effects on people, which is very well known, so your local psychiatric ward and the local police force will agree that full moon and lunar perigee do have very definite effects on people who are already susceptible. But we leave that until later. Well, so here, here we are in, in our little tiny corner of space, which is absolutely invisible in the overall context. Um, if we had a map of the visible universe covering the whole of this wall 
uh, our solar system would be a little speck in the corner. It's absolutely nothing. And I think to imagine that we represent the absolute ultimate evolution of life everywhere in the creation is thoroughly presumptuous, and I certainly don't believe it. Not only are we moving around in all directions, and the Earth incidentally wobbles, just to add to the fun, you know, like your children's tops when they start falling over. The Earth is doing that. It's called the Chandler Wobble. Not only are we shooting around in all directions, but we are under attack, literally being bombarded all the time, day and night, by all kinds of rather peculiar radiations and actual particles, bits of stuff that hit us in the head, mostly from the sun, in fact almost entirely from the sun. So we have to take rather a lot of interest in what the sun is sending us and then we, we get down to studying the various effects this can have. I'll, I'll come to that. First, I'd like to read you a... I'm going to quote as many scientists as I can tonight to give some sort of respectability to what I'm going to tell you. My friend Dick Massack in the University of Copenhagen is an expert on what is known as the many-body problem. This is a thing in um, physics where you study the relations between two separate bodies, rather like billiard balls. You know, if you hit one, you can't really predict where it's going to go. A billiard player can, but a scientist can't. That's one of the mysteries that neither can explain. Anyway, Matic says that in the 19th century, the three-body problem was insoluble as far as exact solutions are concerned. With general relativity and quantum electrodynamics in the 20th century, the two-body and the one-body problems became insoluble as well. Now, with quantum field theory, the vacuum or the zero-body problem is also insoluble. And as Matter has said, no, no bodies at all is already too many. Now, that gives you an idea of some of the problems that physicists have in sorting out the way things are behaving. How then are we going to understand how even the nine or ten bodies in our solar system, we're not sure how many there are, but the major planets from Mercury out to um, what's it called, Pluto, and various moons, and asteroids and other bits of wreckage out there, we could spend a lifetime, even with the best available computer, working out what are known as perturbations, the way in which the orbits of one orbiting body affect the orbits of another one. This is how they discovered planets in the past, and if any of you want to discover a planet, this is how you do it in the future. It's not really very difficult in theory. The only problem is you probably won't be able to see it because it's too far away. However, with all these space probes going on, it may well be, I think, I'm sure there will be another planet discovered beyond Pluto. I'm not sure that I'm terribly interested, though. I don't know what we're going to do with it when we have discovered it. We're far more concerned with things nearer to home. Well, let's have a look at the sun for a moment and think about it. It, it is an extremely enormous thing, and it behaves in the most violent, explosive manner. And yet, once again, we are able to live and stay alive, not 
in spite of this, but because of it, we are entrained, entrained in the sense of lots, if you like, to the behavior of the sun. If anything went wrong with the sun, it would be the end of us. And in fact, it will be in, I think, about 30 million years. Um, the sun will eventually burn out and, and life on Earth will stop. By then, I hope it will have evolved elsewhere. Now, when Skylab, which came down, when it went up in 1973, it recorded in just 28 days more information about the sun than had been recorded in the entire history of the world. So this gives you some idea of the state which scientists are in at the moment trying to interpret this data. I've seen a room literally full of Skylab material hanging on the walls like newspapers in the public library, except for about three or four million of them instead of half a dozen dailies which seems to print out. And one scientist was complaining there that it's great to have all this material, but uh, we just don't have slightest chance to be able to get through it. So I mean it's this kind of situation that led me to quote a poem by T.S. Eliot as a kind of motto for the idea of cosmic forces. The opening chorus of his poem The Rock, where he says, among other things, uh, where is the knowledge we have lost in information? And that is a very good question because we have more and more information about everything nowadays and yet it's still apparently not possible for two men to sit down and discuss the terms under which one works for the other without considerable difficulty. I don't know why this would be, but there it is. In spite of all our psychologists and sociologists and behavior therapists and so on, we don't know how to behave, we don't really know how anything works at all, and every year we realize we've got another problem to worry about. Every month there is a new journal of something or other published, which we have to at least uh, read the, the summaries of, and it's got to the point where we simply can't keep up. I don't know the answer to that problem at all. I don't think anybody else does, but I just pointed out as something to be borne in mind. Everything is getting terribly complicated nowadays. Well, get back to the sun. I'll leave out all the boring statistics about it. I think you all know it's very big and it's very hot. What is very interesting about the sun is that it comes out in spots, which of course you haven't seen, unless you're astronomers, because you can't look at the sun directly without going blind. And please don't ever try. Extremely dangerous, especially with a telescope. But if you look at the sun through a reflector onto a piece of paper, which you can do quite easily, you just stick it in your garden, put a bit of paper underneath it and focus it, and you'll see the sunspots. They go across the equator, more or less, and they look rather like butterflies, because they're equally spaced each side of it. And these are very strange things, because they're not regular. They come and go. Overall, they come and go in cycles, what is known as the solar cycle popularly, in fact means the 11 year cycle of peak to trough, I'm sorry, bottom to bottom, yes, one complete cycle of solar output is an average of about 11 years, so we call that solar cycle. In fact, they vary from day to day enormously. If you look at the um, chart of sunspots ever since 1650, 
it goes up and down like this quite nicely and slight variation no cycle is ever exactly the same which is rather mysterious and yet the average out is 11.08 years if you look at the, the day-to-day sunspot chart which I have all over my kitchen about 8 feet long for one year it looks much the same you get tremendous variations all the time and a general upward trend during the rising period such as now and then a general downward but it's not constant at all the sun is not constant or predictable or regular or anything it looks in fact like a tremendous chaos but the fact that it's the, these cycles even out on average suggests that there is a cause behind it which we simply can't identify all kinds of theories have been put forward as to why the sun comes out in spots involving what is called magnetohydrodynamics which I won't attempt to go into but the man to read on that is the Swedish professor Hannes Alpsbank who um, believes that sunspots created by uh, magnetic fields inside the sun erupting and the spot is in fact a sort of plug hole in the bath except that instead of the water coming out it's the other way around if you were the other side of the plug hole here energy is being shot out of the sun's surface photosphere and the spot is what we can see now this is important I spent a lot of time studying the history of sunspots because they tell us a, a tremendous lot about many different things they tell us a great deal about the way in which man has reacted to new discoveries uh, which in itself is quite interesting the fact that they were known to ancient Chinese Russians, Armenians and probably Japanese for thousands of years but they were only discovered in Europe approximately the year 1610 by Galileo and three other people independently first discovered them and then faced the idea what they were Kepler in fact saw a sunspot and he thought it was a planet going across the face of the sun he thought it was Mercury it's quite a reasonable assumption really Mercury of course does look very small and you see it against the sun it was only in 1850 only just over 100 years ago that it was discovered that sunspots come and go in cycles and that they are electromagnetic that they are actually signifying the emission of a colossal great burst of matter actual radiation and particles which comes all the way down to earth crashes through our ionosphere and you can see it in the, in the northern lights that, that's what the northern lights are it's bits of sun very highly charged particles which are visible and there it is a direct hot line literally from sun to earth now it goes further than that because first rather alarming thing to discover is that the um, the earth as you know has a magnetic field which appears to respond directly to this solar radiation and when you look at the figures for the um, fluctuations in the magnetic field of the earth over a very long period of time you'll find that these go up and down almost in exact agreement with those of the solar cycle so we can deduce there that either one is causing the other 
and it's impossible to imagine how the earth can have any direct effect on the sun and that's surely unreasonable so either the sun is causing fluctuations in our magnetic field or else a third factor is causing both of them we can't rule that out we can't rule anything out in this area so that's the first mystery to start with how are sunspots caused why do they come and go so extremely irregularly one day you can have 300 of them the next day you have none and then you have 50 and then you have 72 and so on but overall there's this steady background rise fall and one complete rise and fall is between 7 and 15 years but averaging as I said about 11 very hard to explain indeed but that is another mystery is why nobody until very recently has ever been able to predict what the sun is going to do has been done now by two or three scientists independently but it's far too soon to tell how they got it right because you have to wait for 11 years to make sure they get top and the bottom of the cycle there are scientists such as the astronomer Molchenov and a remarkable Norwegian astronomer named Meldal who have gone as far as to suggest that every body in the sky all the planets, all the moons and don't forget the moons, there's a lot of them the other planets have got all kinds of moons um, orbiting them and the asteroids the remains of an exploded planet presumably out beyond Earth uh, Martinoff and Mildar both believe that all of these bodies are related to each other by a system of harmonic resonance I won't go too far into that but resonance is simply what happens when you play a note on the piano and there's another piano over there and the same string will, will, will resonate right? because you've got the same frequency in each that's quite easy to understand in music but what is less easy to understand is that this happens all the time in um, in nature and even in interplanetary nature according to theories of such people as particularly Meldal who believes that the sunspots are caused by resonances of planets now this may well be true I don't think more than 1% of astronomers would be prepared to consider that because this would smack of astrology which is something that really drives them up the wall they won't even talk about it but it would take so long to work out the actual interrelations of all the heavenly bodies hundreds of them it just simply couldn't be done so we, we really are left with something we can't prove and we can't disprove which is rather annoying but I, again I just mentioned that because it's something to think about we do have to face the thought that the solar system is a vast electrical machine um, operating with extreme precision in steady cycles which are to some extent predictable once we've worked out how many factors to take into account and when we can predict them we should make a lot of progress in many areas well so much for the sun and the magnetic field which is all around us I'd just like to read you another brief statement man has been described as a living sundial and a living barometer by two um, leading contemporaries the Russian scientist has once asked are we all slaves of the sun well 
the more recent Soviet writer called Sergeyev said that earthly life is bound by invisible threads to the cosmos both near and far. And another Italian has said that to be submitted to these mysterious cosmic effects, we do not have to be shot into space, we do not have to leave our own room. In other words, we're under attack all the time by these things. Now, to be more specific, man is also an electric machine, right? He is a conductor of electricity. He's swimming around in a sea of air, which is resonating with every possible kind of electric and magnetic field, both natural and artificial, which we are only really beginning to understand something about, the artificial ones, the effects they have on people. Man is also, in some extent, is a broadcasting station. He does emit waves. This has again been discovered quite recently that even the heart emits magnetic waves. Not very far, but they're, they're there. In theory, they, they have their interactions. Our brain is, is an entirely electrical, well, not entirely, but it is thoroughly electrical in general operation, electrochemical. So, it is therefore not surprising that we are going to be affected by any kind of natural electrical effects in our environment. This is inevitable, because any electrical event affects any other within reach. can't avoid it. Now, the problem is, is all this important, or is it just a sort of um, attempt to scare people having run out of ghost stories. Well, no it isn't, because thanks largely to research that's been carried out in in Russia, where they, paradoxically enough, are far more interested in border areas of science than we are, they, they've discovered that not only does solar cycle coincide with that of the magnetic field, but also with epidemics. During the 19th century, uh, Russia had a very serious epidemic problem. They, they lost thousands of people in, in epidemics, mostly caused by various types of vermin and insects and so on. And this remarkable fellow, Alexander Kijewski, who died about 15 years ago, he discovered that these epidemics would rise and fall exactly in line with the solar cycle. He discovered this in about 1915, even before the um, revolution, when he was still at school, and he was younger than some of you are here tonight. He also began to look around and he discovered that all kinds of other things seemed to go up and down together with the cycle. Some of them most peculiar. Uh, he suggested, for example, that the way the British voted in the 19th century oscillated between what was then called Whig and Tory, or Liberal and Conservative, again in line with the further cycle. When I read this, I thought, dear me, this is absolutely crazy. So I went along to my local public library in London, and I dug out all the statistics for general elections since the war, because any kind of war throws all cycles completely off uh, balance. And lo and behold, he's absolutely right. Of course, this is only 30 years of data, and you don't expect an exact 
uh, you know, you don't expect the charts to go up and down like this. But I, I got out my little roasting pen and with my unscientific hand I plotted the number of votes cast for each Venus party and for each um, solar maximum. I find they, they sort of do go together, which is curious. Of course, that's not... Uh, to present this sort of evidence to any scientist, he will, if he'll listen at all, he'll say, yes, of course, we need more data. And when I have 10,000 years of data, he's going to say the same thing, so I don't bother to tell him in the first place. But this is an interesting example of an idea which seemed to me to be absolutely mad. When I checked it out, I found that I got the same conclusion as Kigirsky. Not only that, but I then got a book out of the library which I read for some quite different reason by an American inventor called Ivan Brani. And what do I find in there but the claim that U.S. presidential elections, percentages for Republican and Democrat, oscillate in accordance with the solar cycle. Now, he makes no mention of Kijewski, and there is nothing at all of Kijewski available in English. Not one word, except the translation of a very obscure article I don't think Brown had ever read. Kijewski is totally unknown in the English-speaking world. I hope he's not now, but I, I've translated quite a lot of it the first time. Three of us completely independently arrived at the same conclusion. Now, how could this possibly be? What, how can the sun make us both labor? This is something, again, I would ask you to think about as a possibility. We haven't quite got it right, but I think we're on to something that the clues you know how it is when you're reading detective stories that the time comes when the clues get a bit too good to be comfortable you feel you're on the right lines and then a skillful detective story writer will play a dirty trick on you and make you realize that you followed the wrong track nature does the same thing i may say extremely unkind very good at knowing false clues i, I think um, research is is really nature investigating us not the other way around so, uh, how, how could it be that the solar cycle makes us both left or right? But there is a, a, quite a plausible theory put forward by a psychiatrist which very much condensed um, would go something like this. Uh, people who are susceptible having their minds altered or by persuasion or by suggestion are definitely at a period of greater suggestibility when the solar energies are at their peak. And it does appear, if you look back on recent history, the two peak years, highest years ever recorded, which were 1957, or rather 56 to 7, and 1968 to 9. I don't need to remind you of all the troubles that happened in the world in those years. The 56 was the year of the Suez business and the Hungarian massacre. 1968 was the year in which apparently every country went completely mad. I don't know what it was like here, but I was involved in a, in a pretty ghastly street riot in Brazil. A lot of people getting killed and all around. There was a tremendous increase in tension and in protest and a very marked swing to the left. This was the height of the Brazilian urban guerrilla movement, which was quite definitely communist. According to this prediction, we're due for another one next year, but don't worry about that. When the 
solar output dies down to zero, as it does, I don't mean the light, I mean the actual um, solar flares and eruptions of matter. When this dies down in what we call the solar minimum years, this effect allows the natural, what we call the background radiation or cosmic radiation from much more distant sources to flow past the Earth and have a different effect on us. Now this is also rather strange because one thing which the Sun does, it acts as a kind of um, barricade, protects Earth, if protects is the right word, against all the other radiation, it, it sweeps them out of the way because it's so close. See, if you can imagine, it's a little hard without a three-dimensional blackboard, but if you imagine Earth here, the Sun, the light up there, and this great sort of whoosh, going past us all the time in a spiral, uh, when that stops, everything else comes in. See, and then when it starts, push it pushes a kind of a path through it. That, that's very oversimplified, but that is what it comes to. So what it, this means is every 11 years, we have a change in the quality of our environment. This is known. This is fact. You know, this is not imagination. This is known. It is also known that in any kind of study of the way that human beings respond to weather and the natural environment that we can see, things like rain, sun, heat, pressure and so on, we can adapt to the most incredible extremes. If you live in a place like New York, for instance, which they haven't protected from, they have an extreme of temperature there of something like 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It goes over way over 100 in the summer and it goes well below zero, much worse than anything in England. And yet they adapt. But what we cannot adapt to, and this is most important, please remember it, what a human being cannot adapt to is a sudden change. Now this applies not only to changes in the weather, if there is a sudden change in the magnetic, uh, what do they call it, flux density, something or other, I don't know, the magnetic field, anyway, there's all kinds of different components of this magnetic field measured that way and that way, and declination, and goodness knows what else, so it's fairly complicated. But when there is a sudden change, this is actually referred to as a magnetic storm, the word they use. These, apparently, are what affect our brains on a day-to-day -day basis. We get some days where people are sort of slightly more disturbed than others, and other days when they're quiet. This has been correlated again, in, mostly in the United States, in fact entirely. They found, for instance, that absenteeism from school in Chicago is considerably more on the day following a magnetic storm than it is on the day following a quiet day. And since the, the evidence for this is extremely precise, and we have a lot of it, we do not get this um, remark that we need more data. We have quite enough data to show that that really does happen. Dr. Arnold Lieber in the city of Miami, Florida, has got the point now of telling the local police chief and the local hospital when to expect trouble. And he's got it right. He's written a whole book about it, which I strongly recommend, called The Lunar Effect. It's a fascinating book, but apart from anything else, he wrote it exactly the same time as I wrote Cycles of Heaven. And not only is it about the same subject, but some of the sentences are actually identical. I don't know what was flying around between Miami and Copenhagen, which is where you wrote our book, but when you get two people on the other side of the world writing virtually the same book, 
and using some of the same actual phrases, begin to wonder who's organizing things. Um, and this is very common, and I say, if you look for this, you'll find frequently that independent people get the same idea simultaneously. It's very well known in science. You only have to think of people like you know, all those different people who discovered calculus altogether. And it happened only last year with a, with a thing called the Psi particle, which was discovered almost on the same day by scientists, I think, in California and in Holland. It's a well-known synchronous effect, but it is, again, very mysterious. Right. Well, I think I've said enough about cycles, but I could go on a very long time. I've gone the whole evening about cycles. They're very fascinating because they are so real. You see, you can collect your data, and we do have an awful lot of data. That's one thing we do have. Any kind of data you want, you've got it. I was talking just now about psychiatric disturbances in Miami. They have extremely efficient data there for every person who is admitted to a psychiatric ward and the state of the degree of their violence is recorded and all this. And, of course, the phases of the moon are known pretty exactly. And uh, Lieber discovered, for instance, that when a full moon co coincides with perigee, which means when the moon is closest to the Earth, the moon comes something like 40,000 miles in. You know, it doesn't go around in circles. It comes zooming into us. And this, this, in fact, happened last week. I don't know if any of you went crazy last Wednesday, but that was a coincidence of perigee and full moon. We had two in a row. We had one in August and one in September. Very rare. And I think if you know this, and you expect it, and not only that, but you know why, we have one another little minor battle against nature. Because what Lieber has been able to do is treat his own patients with um, some kind of chemical drug, which, first of all, he explains to them that, um, right, it is next Wednesday, there's going to the moon is a perigee, so it's very much closer. So the gravitational pull is stronger and the full moon is reflecting more light from the sun onto you so you're getting more radiation more gravity and you're going to go bananas so um, take this little pill the day before and bear in mind that it's going to quieten you down and it does you see this is i think very clever really because it, it, it's a kind of attitude which would never have been taken seriously until very recently the idea that first of all that these cosmic backgrounds had any effect at all was thought ridiculous and then the idea that we could do anything about it was equally ridiculous so that's a small example of the way we are making some sort of progress you've probably all heard of this stuff called biorhythm which gets written about with books of increasing irresponsibility and inaccuracy every year one chapter seems to have made a career out of it he sort of publishes a biorhythm annual comes around again next year with the same old stuff. Let, let's get that straightened out because this is something you can all do yourself. The biorhythm is simply a rhythm of any bio-living system. We all have them. We have cycles of sleep, that's the most obvious one. Cycles of hunger and all the various chemical processes of the body. These are perfectly natural and not particularly mysterious. The suggestion has been made that we have cycles of 23, 28 and 33 days which relates, I think, respectively to um, 
doesn't matter which is which, but they're all wrong. But anyway, there are physical, emotional, and intellectual cycles of uh, up and down. It's a fascinating idea, and I wish it was true, but it's not, for many reasons. Um, to start with, I refuse to believe that every human being has the same cycles. We're not created alike in any way at all, except our actual supplies. I mean, we have right numbers of arms and legs and so on, but no two people are made with anything identical, really, as far as anything non-anatomical is concerned and suggest that, that people behave in identical cycles is to me quite outrageous. Uh, there are many other good arguments against it, uh, uh, among them the fact that none of these proponents of what I call pop biorhythm has ever bothered to come up with any evidence. Although I'm not a scientist, I do like to see some sort of evidence of something before I go overboard on a new idea. However, having said that, yes, we do have biorhythms, and they are far more complicated than people who write these books would have you believe. I'm afraid you can't buy one of these pocket calculators and work out when you're going to have good and bad days. It doesn't work. I tried it, tried it very hard for a whole year. I hear you, some of you, curiously objecting mentally that, oh yes, it does work, and I've done it. Well, of course it's going to. If you've got three cycles crossing midpoints on the average once or twice a month you're going to have five or six days in every month which is what they call critical critical meaning you're going to die or something so you cannot in fact do anything and ever be more than about three days from a critical day this is so obvious that, that it's hardly worth mentioning but it seems to escape the, the, the both rhythm uh, salesman it is totally meaningless so, so please ignore it the sort of standardized stuff out of the question. There's only one cycle which is probably fairly near the mark, and that is the 28-day one, which must surely have something to do with the moon. But here we have another problem, which is which moon? We have five different months. The moon has, ooh, I can't remember what they're all called. There's the sidereal month, the synodic one, the anomalistic one, and the draconian one, and of course the calendar month, which is artificial. The interesting one, I think, is the anomalistic one, which is the period between perigees. That's when the moon is furthest from the Earth and closest. This is something measurable, which we can calculate. You now, we know what the gravitational pull of the moon on the Earth is. We work that out very precisely. And that comes and goes, and fairly regular, allowing for the odd sort of perturbation. It's not exactly a month ever. It works out about 28 days. Then again, it's not 28 days every month, you see. This is another fact that the biorhythm cells are completely overlooked. There's no cycle in nature ever identical at all. We don't have nights and days of the same length, do we? We don't have years of the same length. If we want to be really precise, we never have years of the same length at all in terms of microseconds. They do, in fact, the Earth occasionally gets slowed down like a pair of disc brakes being put on it by the sun. This has actually been recorded. Very violent solar flare slow down the Earth. I wonder what it's doing to us at the same time. Also, during a total eclipse of the Moon, it has been very reliably observed, something very strange happens to gravity. Gravity is something, surely, in this confusing universe we can all take for granted. If we drop something, it will fall. Well, I'm afraid not. It might go up. Sorry, but this was done by a French professor 
quite a long time ago, 20 years ago, in a Paris mining school where they have a colossal great pendulum uh, all built into concrete and underground and so on. He had the bright idea of giving up his lunch hour, heroic thing for Parisians to do, and observe this pendulum during a total eclipse that took place between about 12 o'clock and 2 o'clock. The last total one we had in Europe was, when was it, 1958 or something. Um, we won't have another one for a long time. Well, he found that the movement of the pendulum went absolutely crazy during this eclipse, and he published this in great detail in English and was completely ignored. Everybody thought he got it all wrong. And a nice, quiet old professor in America thought the next time a total eclipse comes around, let's try it again. And and even go on, I mean, you, you know what happens, you try it again, you've got exactly the same results. Something does go wrong with the laws of gravity during eclipses. There is no reason for it. Do you ever read about this in New Scientist? Oh, no. It's new. This is one of the problems that we're up against, you see. You, you're up against what Alan McGushin has called the Dorstammers Union. It's not part of the TUC, but it's part of the Royal Society, the establishment scientists. When, it, when something turns up that does not fit in their positions, they slam the door in your face. Now, not only me, they've been doing it. In fact, if you study the history of science, you will find that every single major advance had the door slammed in its face from the circulation of the blood right down to the launching of Sputnik. They've all been described as impossible. I'd like to say a little bit more about biorhythm in view of the great importance of it. The most obvious example of a human cycle is naturally the female cycle of creation, which the whole process of birth, in fact, human gestation is highly cyclic, it's largely predictable. But then again, I'm, I'm astonished to discover how many women know how little, how many women know about their own cycles. I, I have done quite a lot of very delicate research on this, and I've been astonished to find young girls who really don't know anything about it at all. You know, the worst happening. They sort of had days when they knew something was going on and they didn't know why and so on. It's really quite disturbing. Well, surely, isn't it not probable that in the days when we lived in the open air, we were very firmly locked onto the cycle of the moon. And I talked a lot about the sun, but don't forget that when I, when I talk about the moon, I mean the sun, don't I? Because moonlight is sunlight. It means we're getting light all day. It seems to be very likely that the creativity, creation cycle of women was originally locked onto the moon for very obvious reasons. I think that, that during the full moon there would be no um, danger in um, civilized society because um, it's not possible to be attacked in that case. Um, so you could um, sleep undisturbed and, and during these very dark nights you'll be on guard all the time. I think this is quite possible. Now an American Jesuit, a remarkable man called Father Rock, splendid uh, name, what is his name, Father Rock. He, uh, working with a biophysicist named Edmund Duon, discovered that women who have completely lost control of their fertility cycle can be brought back into line, as it were, or paid off, simply by sleeping with a light on. Now again, this is marvelous. This is something so simple and so obvious and so natural 
that again the Dawsoners Union gets to work and you will not find this mentioned anywhere in any sort of parent advice centre. And I only wish it were because um, I know very well from experience what terrible stress and emotional worry can be caused girls, especially before the first baby, if anything goes wrong with their bodily rhythms. And it may be that all you have to do is speak to the light on. And can't go back in tune with the moon. If, if you don't have access to a moon, which is within London, you, know, you never even see the racial thing, you where it is. But out here you probably do, if you, if you live in a country you tend to be more aware of these problems. Um, you probably don't have problems in the first place, but people who do, again, there is a very simple way in which we can fight back, as so often by going back to knowledge which our modern scientists will describe as survival of the dark age of superstition and pre-scientific and so on. It's not true at all. It, it, it simply means that ancient man was a great deal smarter than we give him credit for. In many ways, he was a great deal cleverer than we are because he was in tune with his environment, much in the same way that the Indians in North America and in South America are today. They, they feel these things happening. They respond to magnetic pressures and so on, and they, they understand everything of the living world, which we don't. Finally, I think I'd like to say a word on biofeedback, and then I will try and sum up all this highly confusing um, material, and um, then we'll have some questions if you're sorry, if you put any um, Biofeedback is not to be confused with biorhythm because this is real and it does work and it is great fun. Biofeedback is not as difficult as it may seem. All you have to do is do this. Quant, that is biofeedback. Listen to my heart beating. That is getting information from the body process fed back to my brain, right? I can, in fact, influence it. Can do that, you know, you can will your heart beats faster or slower. Nothing psychic about that. You just do it. It's quite fun. Um, you can practice if you like with one of these quartz clocks that tick one cycle a second. Happens to be the rhythm of deep sleep. And I found the day I bought a quartz clock, I went to sleep almost instantaneously. I didn't know why. And I worked out that the ticking was driving my brain rhythm down into delta. And now that I know this, Again, I, I've discovered this sort of mistake, but by becoming aware of it, it becomes that much more effective. This is another minor battle one against what can be quite a problem. You can't get to sleep, it can be very tiresome. And instead of taking all these awful sleeping pills, by a quartz clock. Biofeedback uh, is a very new thing. It, it dates back actually quite a few years to things like autogenic training and so on, which have been around for some time, but the actual idea that we can influence the processes of our own body simply by using the mind, I think this is tremendous. It's very, very exciting. And, and what's more, there is no limit, apparently, to what it can do. You see, the only limit appears to be what we think the limit is. But as I'm sure you, you've heard story, stories of these so-called miracle cures, of all religions, they all have them, places like Lourdes in France, and um, members of, of most churches who have absolutely 
unlimited faith, they, if they believe something to be possible, it becomes possible. I find this out over and over again. If you do not believe something to be possible, then it is not. It's entirely up to you. You believe it, and it is. You don't believe it, and it's not. With biofeedback, you not only believe it, but you can see it happening. You sit down on a table wired up to one of these mind mirrors, as they're called, and with a bit of practice, you very hard to describe what you do in words, but you can actually make, make your brain go up and down the scale, both in, in amplitude and in frequency. Somebody with a really well-trained brain can virtually turn it off at will. I've seen this happen to a Brazilian medium friend of mine who I took along to this place where they make these things in London, and he um, practically blew up the machine. He, he drove all the way to the maximum amplitude at once, which is said to be impossible because you can hardly be asleep and awake at the same time, but he was. And um, this is a, a way of, really, uh, a way of being very satisfied on all counts, because you can see yourself doing this, and other people can see you're doing it, so there's really no doubt about it. Now, is it any use? Yes, you can control your heartbeat, you can control your blood pressure, which may cause all kinds of um, problems like migraine headaches, for instance. I've got a friend of mine working on this right now. I've had migraine for years. Any number of other diseases, quite possibly including some of the really nasty ones, can or will be in the future caused, cured, entirely by our own brain. And we will be able to know that we're doing it, and it will be repeatable, and I think even the person at Alzheimer's Union will not be able to stand the door on that one. Well, what do we learn from all this confusing cosmos and all the various psychological forces flying around and doing all this um, apparent damage? In my opinion, we learn two things. One is that uh, in spite of having lost the knowledge in the information, and as Elliot went on, uh, we have also lost the wisdom. And we have the information, but we don't have the knowledge, and we don't have the wisdom. We are, as he put it, farther from God and nearest to dust. He wrote that ten years before the first atomic bomb, and I said. One thing I would suggest that we all do is simply listen to ourselves. Again, this is very simple. Um, you've probably heard about various commercial forms of meditation, including PM and a number of others. Well, uh, I have nothing for or against any of these methods. I've never tried them. As with biorhythm, um, you don't need it. I told you all the answers to everything you need are in here. All you have to do to achieve this state of what's variously called as a satori or a number of other exotic words, it simply means a state of nothing. You get a ping pong ball, you chop it in half, which is quite tricky. I do it with a very sharp saw, actually. You put it in a vice and go around it that way. Anyway, practice. You then lie down anywhere, um, put ping pong balls over your eyes, or better still, over your glasses, which is a rather practice. Um, you then block your ears up, or if you want to be really professional, you put on a pair of headphones, uh, those cup headphones that block out noise. You then connect your headphones to a radio station which is not broadcasting and you get what is called white noise. The purpose of all this ritual is to 
give you nothing to the mind on. The basis of meditation, the, the yoga you do this, it takes rather a long time to do it by regular breathing and uh, concentration. But in this modern age, with headphones and ping-pong balls, you do it straight off, bang, you, you block out the light, you get a white light, you know, ears, you get white noise, um, sorry, white light there, and white noise, and you sort of freeze, you know, you, you be still. You will then find that things come into your mind. They really do. Try and see. Depending on what you put in to your program, as it were, what you ask, this is really computerized prayer at work. And it does work, as it always has worked. But it's nice to know that scientists are now able to accept it in language that is acceptable to them, as well as the rest of us. Try to see. This is another way in which we can receive information from a source which is open to uh, much discussion. It does come, and it's a two-way process because feedback, of course, cannot take place unless um, you are providing what it is you're trying to study. So I'll leave you with the um, reminder of great Einstein, than whom nobody greater, uh, whose academic record was absolutely terrible. When he was bad in mind, he couldn't do his thumbs, he couldn't do anything. Uh, when he had a problem to do, he used to close his eyes, let figures dance around in front of him, he said. And he couldn't do badly. So, I'll leave you with um, a suggestion that we... first thing is to find out what is going on around us, and then, just as we did in the days we lived in the swamps and the caves and forests, we find out where we are, we then conquer our environments, we turn it to good use, and we fight back.